Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's weekly politics podcast, the crudest cut of all edition. I'm your host, Sarah O'Donnell. I'm an editorial writer with the Journal, and with me in the Journal's newsroom studio on this November 6th, to catch up on the current affairs affecting life at the Alberta Legislature and beyond, our city columnist, Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. We've got provincial affairs <laughs> columnist, Graham Thompson. Hello. And business columnist, Gary Lamphere, who I am delighted to have on the show for his press gallery debut. Thanks here, here. for coming, Gary. And I'm deeply honored to be here. Hi, highly, Gary. Highly energized <laughs> by that title, by the way. I know, I know. Well, we're, yeah, we're going to talk a lot about oil, so there, that's why we've got crude humor going on. But we spent a good chunk of time last week talking about the Wild Rose Party and how they were reacting to losses in all four of October's by-elections. There was more upheaval in the ranks this week, so we'll review what's going on. And and then, as I mentioned, since we're lucky enough to have Gary with us, we are going to turn our attention to the downward direction of world oil prices and how that could affect Albertans. But we'll start by getting an update on the state of Alberta's official opposition. When we talked last week, leader Danielle Smith had announced that she would ask the party to hold a leadership review at its annual general meeting later this month. Not only that, but she said she needed the support of 77% of the members to stay on the job. Graham and Paula, explain to me how this all got derailed this week, or or did it get derailed? <laughs> derailed. I blame Joe, Joe Anglin, and I thank Joe Anglin for this too. Make things very interesting. Um, you go back to the um, the by election results caused major problems within the um, the Wild Rose Party. Uh, Joe Anglin came out. He's a Wild Rose was a Wild Rose MLA, saying that there was problems within the party. This is before he actually left the caucus. He was speaking up publicly against this, uh, how they actually ran their campaigns. Now, we had Danielle Smith come out and say she wants a leadership review, volunteering for it. Needed 77%, as you pointed out. And all of a sudden, uh, over the weekend, they had a caucus meeting um, where they were going to kick out Joe Anglin, but then Anglin jumped before he could be pushed out. So they also had a meeting to uh, show support for Smith by saying there's no need leadership review we love you please stay and then they scrapped the idea for leadership review but it gave the impression they were panicking that because joe england had left caucus because they'd done so badly in the the by-elections that they thought that perhaps she would not survive a leadership review 70 percent 75 percent but she might not get 77 percent that which was is, the impression which is the they got. magic alberta weird number because it's the number that allison redford and ed stelmack both achieved before being pushed out of their parties. Okay, so so the, the caucus said we vote not to have a leadership review, and then was there also an issue that the, they actually couldn't have a leadership review, that that well, violated the party's rules? It was, it was the party's constitution, you can't, but if they have to have some sort of show of hands, and their party president could actually do this, they could do something to have a, a show of support for her. Now, the thing to understand about Joe Anglin, of course, is that his abrupt departure wasn't so very abrupt as all that. I mean, he has a reputation for being, how shall we call it? The outspoken. Outspoken. The, the, the grain of sand in the oyster. Um, he's the former leader of the Green Party, which split because, in part, Joe Anglin has difficult getting along and playing well with others. And he'd already lost the nomination in his own riding. I mean, he lost to his former um, uh, riding association president, so he was ousted as a possible candidate for the party. So he had issues with the Wild Rose long before the by-election results. 
but his departure did sort of precipitate this whole discussion. And there was even some question, you know, in the Twitter sphere about whether or not the fact that the caucus voted unanimously to support their leader was in a peculiar way undermining the leader if the leader wanted a review. And then the caucus said, no, we will not have a leadership review. Was their show of loyalty actually, in a perverse way, a show of disloyalty? Hmm. Um, I think it's possible to parse this a bit too hard. Uh, I think, as we discussed last week, that the Wild Rose made some serious strategic errors in those four by-elections. I also think that Prentice had a big honeymoon bounce, and I think for the party to panic because of those by-election results would have been you know, the wrong choice. And I think, frankly, um, the departure of Joe Anglin doesn't weaken that caucus one iota. There were also some staff changes in the Wild Rose. Now, this is very kind of behind the scenes insider stuff. I suspect most Albertans don't really care who the press secretaries are and that sort of thing. But does that help them, do you think, Graham, or does that does that hurt them? Um, well, they brought in a chief of staff. Uh, they moved out Vitor Marciano. Um, he was the press secretary to the leader, to Danielle Smith. He's been bumped now down to um, an assistant to the leader. They're right now trying to find uh, a reason why they did so badly. And I think a shuffle is never really a bad thing, perhaps. Uh, the question is, are they overreacting to it? I don't know. It's interesting that you know, Joe Anglin is saying they had problems within that um, the party during the by-elections. They spent too much money on the attack ads. The, the problem wasn't Smith. It was people around her. And the party actually is shuffling people around her. Like They're actually doing some of the things that he had complained about uh, to fix. So right. it's interesting to see... Um, how much of a problem this is for the Wild Rose. Um, as Paula pointed out, it's not just the Wild Rose going down, it's the um, PCs getting a real big bounce from um, having jo- uh, Jim Prentice as their premier, as their leader. And if he continues to do as well as he's done in the last few weeks, last month or so, um, the problem won't be the Wild Rose doing badly, it's the fact the PCs are doing so well. Mm, so do you think now they're is chaos in the Wild Rose uh, wings behind the scenes, or is this actually a united caucus? There are some serious problems in that party right now because of what happened in the by-election. There's a lot of people, I think that she would have done, she would have, Mrs. Smith would have done quite well in a leadership review. The question is, over 77%, the party is saying, yes, she would have got, you know, again, 85, 90% like she got last year. But there's still that cranky, enough people in that party who are cranky and don't like where she has taken the party that could have been a problem for her. I think moving ahead, she is quite popular. I can't imagine that party without her. And I think that um, they're going to get over this. The question, again, isn't just them doing badly. It's the fact the PCs are going to swamp them, it seems, at this point. You know, but protest parties, whatever their ideological slant, always have this problem. I mean, they, they start off, we're going to be a grassroots party, we're going to listen to the people. And they inevitably attract a core group of cranks and malcontents because those are the people who split from other parties to go form new ones. Graham's right. There's always going to be a rump within that party who are not going to be happy at the way Daniel Smith has moved that party to the center. I mean, there are people who joined that party specifically because they were anti-gay rights, and now she's made them a party that's pro-gay rights. There were people who joined that party specifically because they were climate change deniers. Now Daniel Smith says that the Wild Rose belongs, you know, believes in climate change. Now, we sitting here would all argue probably that she's made the right pragmatic choice to take the party to the middle, to take the party to the mainstream. But in those by-elections, the people who were mad at her for doing that can quite justifiably turn around and say, hey, Danielle, you took the party to the mainstream, and guess what? We still didn't win any seats. And I just want one more thing before we move on to oil, which is really important. Um, the oil, that is, not necessarily what I'm going to say. Um, that is, the Wild Rose is going to make an effort now to be more positive. 
they've been saying that. Uh, the, they got hammered, they feel, because they were being too negative. And that was one of the comments that Prentice made. This is, a, you know, his victory is a victory for optimism over net negativity. Well, in a way, he's right, and the Wild Roses is, is saying, that in fact, the, he was right. People see the Wild Roses as being too negative. The angry party. Yeah, they, yeah the, the angry old men, basically, party. So they think they've got to be more positive and not just be negative on the government, but to try and show what they would do in a positive vein um, for the province. So expect them to be less negative moving forward, more positive, and have a message that seems to be a bit more maybe palatable to the population. The problem may be they may get lost then in the shuffle with the PCs saying many of the same things. Oh, well, this is going to be fun to watch. I'm going to look forward to this. One thing I'm having less fun watching is the price of oil. So we know that oil yes, is the one of thing angry old that's right, that can predictably <laughs> cause chaos to all corners of Alberta are these fluctuating oil prices. And for the last month, Premier Jim Prentice has been urging caution. We talked about in the past how he used those words at our editorial board. Um, He's the new dear prudence of Alberta. Now, I'm an Alberta girl. I've seen oil prices go up and down my whole life. But this particular down seems more serious than some of the others we've seen in recent years. But that's why we've got Gary here to help us put this all in perspective. So can you tell me and our listeners how have things changed since the summer for oil prices and how serious it is? Oh, let's talk about Gian Gomeshi instead. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. no, I think we should distinguish ourselves by being the only podcast in Canada not talking about Gian we Gomeshi. We can because we just did now, but no, oil prices, please. Well, I, I say that in jest because I'm going to make your heads hurt. I mean, when you talk about oil prices these days, there are so many moving parts um, that it makes my head hurt, and I get paid to follow this stuff for a living. So bear with me here. I'll try and skinny it down to uh, something that's uh, digestible at least. So we've had about a 30% drop in prices since June. Uh, I think Brent, the international grade, peaked around 115. It's around 82 this morning. WTI, the North American light crude benchmark, peaked around 107 in uh, in June. We're at about eight, or sorry, about 77 and change. This morning, so that hurts. This isn't 2008, though. In 2008, we had a drop of near 80%. I crunched the numbers yesterday. It went from 147 to 33 between June of 08 and February of 09. Now, that's that's a plunge. Yes. Um, so we're not we're not in that kind of ballpark. Uh, we have had a you know a major decline, and it, it's hurting. Um, l- let me try to explain what I think is happening. Um, we've, we've got uh, relatively soft global demand growth. There is growth, but it's slower than expected. It's uh, Global demand is around, I think, 92 million barrels a day. And the growth is in the range of 300,000 barrels. You know, the forecasters were expecting triple that, I think, uh, you know, a year ago or nine months ago. Uh, why? Slowing economy in China. It's not growing as fast as it was. Europe, of course, as everyone knows, is uh, on the mat. They're in deep trouble. U.S. growth has been good. Um, that's the, the positive surprise. Economic growth there has been stronger. But demand for oil is down because the U.S. doesn't consume as much oil as it once did. I think it peaked in around 05 or 06. So add it all up, it's kind of a slow growth global picture, and there's too much supply. The Americans are cranking out, I think, almost 9 million barrels, if, if I recall correctly, of crude because of this you know, shale boom. And, uh, and, and Canada, of course, is growing its output. Our oil sands continue to grow in terms of output. And, and then you've got OPEC, which produces about 40% of the world's crude. And in, within OPEC, the Saudis are the big player. They produce about 40% of OPEC's total. 
So what you got is a battle for market share, basically. The Saudis are hurting because they're getting backed out of the U.S. market by, guess what, Canadian crude, Canadian heavy. Our exports are actually up to the U.S. over the, uh, over the last five to ten years. The Saudis are shrinking. I think they're, they're exporting about 900,000 barrels a day to the Americans. For the Saudis, the big, big market, the important market for them is China. They are the number one supplier to China, and that's going to grow. Uh, all the projections are for growth in China. So you've got this kind of war going on on multiple fronts, and if you look at what's happening in China, the Russians and the Saudis are squaring off. So the, the Saudis are undercutting their prices to China, forcing the Russians to reduce their prices, and it's causing pain on the Russians. So this is likely going to play out over several months. This is not going to be a quick fix. It's not going to end tomorrow or this week. Uh, this is going to be a months-long process before it's sorted out. OPEC may have to cut production uh, to bring some stability back into prices. The American shale producers, who are high cost in some cases, about a third of U.S. shale, is apparently uneconomic below 80. So some shale production may get curtailed, and some Canadian conventional production may get curtailed because some Canadian uh, conventional production is high cost. So. As I say, I'm gonna. I, I made your heads hurt. No, no, talking about that. Good. It hurt. It hurt my head talking about it. No, I mean, but I, it's gonna take a while. I understand more than I did five minutes ago. <laughs> and, and it's so interesting because I think for all of us growing up, I mean, our anticipation was always that political unrest in the Middle East bumped oil prices up. So, you know, I stupidly thought, oh well, you know, there's war in Iraq, there's war in Syria, oil prices will stay steady and you know we, we we forget now how much more complicated that geopolitical and you know that's mosaic it, is and and you shouldn't feel stupid that you did assume that because i think that was the assumption of sophisticated veteran analysts until about three months ago i remember talking to one of the top commodity analysts in canada probably about three months ago who said in a report quite publicly that there's a new floor price for oil and it's probably around 100 bucks a barrel because oh. of because of conflict in the Middle East. Well, here we are. Hmm. That didn't turn out so well, the did it? The floor is dropping. What kind of an impact is this going to have on oil sands projects? Do we have a sense of that yet? Well, I think um, it's a, a, a bit of a mantra that you hear from uh, the oil sands producers. But, you know, they, they like to say, and in fact our premier has said, these are long-term projects with 40 and 50 and 60-year projected lives. And therefore, if we have low prices for a quarter or two, that's not likely to throw them offline in a significant way. Yes, some, are, some may get curtailed or shelved, or there may be some delays. But uh, longer term, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact on them. And uh, one of the reasons I say that is I was just reading an, a report uh, this morning quoting OPEC's projections. And OPEC itself hasn't really changed its long-term price projections on oil. Uh, they tend to be in 10, 20, 30 years out in the triple digits and some and, and some of the longer-term projections in the $150 range. So despite the volatility right now, the long-term outlook continues to be pretty positive. And I'll just say one final thing. Martin King, the commodity analyst at First Energy Capital in Calgary, put out a report this morning. He, he, he made some historical comparisons to recent downturns. Typically, historically, the decline from the peak to the, bo to the bottom is about... A, a process of about 100 to 110 trading days, which maps out to about four months. And in his view, we're there. We're almost at the bottom. We're roughly where the bottom has been if you use historic precedents. Right. Uh, he's not suggesting we're going to have a V-shaped recovery, but he's uh, suggesting that by the new year, we should start to see a bit of, uh, uh, of uh, uptrend. Okay. Well, la last time oil prices were a serious issue in Alberta, it, it was when 
former Premier Alison Redford uh, made this bitumen bubble so very famous in that special speech two years ago. So how is what's going on now different from what happened two years ago, or is it is it the same? Uh, well, we still have discounts. Uh, as of this morning, I think the differential is about 19 bucks. That's a little bit higher than it was a couple of weeks ago. I think it got down to the 12, 14 range. Um, so it's, it's up a little bit. Um, and that's a, an access issue, a pipeline access is- issue. And the industry is, as you know, tried to resolve that in part by, uh, by band-aiding uh, access through rail, by using rail as an interim solution until they get pipelines built. And so that has helped, uh, and that's uh, helped squeeze that differential down from, I think it blew out to over 40 bucks a barrel at peak, right, Graham, if I mm-hmm. recall correctly? So it's not like that's gone away completely, but it's, it's improved. The differentials are down. And, but now we're getting into the end game here. As uh, the Premier said, uh, without pipelines by 2018, I think it is, uh, we're at capacity. And um, so the industry needs a longer-term solution. Another thing to remember, too, is rail is expensive. And with prices down, that's a double whammy. So that becomes a less feasible alternative if low prices persist, right? Oh, I'd forgotten about that. So you've given us an overview of the oil price picture. Now I want an overview about what implications this has for the provincial government and the services that they provide to all of us Albertans. And can give us a primer on why oil prices matter so much to the provincial budget. Well, I mean, it's a hit to the budget, not just because we collect the royalty on the oil, but because we collect the taxes on the oil industries and the service industries that support the oil industry. So anytime oil prices go down, it's a major, major hit to the budget. The tradition in Alberta, of course, is that we we suck on that teat. We, We make ourselves dependent on a volatile resource sector. Uh, not just the royalties, but the profits derived from the from the sector. We haven't diversified our economy or our tax base. So every time things go up, we spend. Every time things go down, we cut. The question always, I think, for people who are watching is how much of that cutting is actually dictated by the economic realities of the budget hit, and how much of it is an ideological or political agenda that is shadowed and, and cloaked by the economic realities, because in the past, lots of variations of this Tory government have used falling oil prices as an excuse to cut things they wanted to cut anyway. Um, so so the question always becomes, um, now that, you know, Prentice is making all of these prudent caution noises, which is code for, I'm going to start cutting things, the question is always, what is he going to cut and why and well, when? What's the equation? I think both Gary and Graham, you might have had this in your columns in recent days. What does every dro- dollar drop in oil price, am- what's the hit on the provincial budget? Just over $200 million. I think it's $220 yeah, million. Dollars. 215, yeah. yeah. That's so, the number I saw. That's, so that's, a, that's a lot of mad money. Yes. So the thing is, so the first half of the year, we actually had um, oil at about $99 a barrel WTI, and we were uh, budgeting on $96. It was actually higher. Now, of course, it's dropped, you know, like $20. Um, and the question now, what happens next year in the budget? We, we, have, a, um, we have a cushion right now. The um, contingency fund will be roughly, they're hoping, about $5 billion. Of course, that depends in part on the price of oil coming in. And so they can live through a downturn next budget and uh, dig into that uh, contingency fund. Um, the p- problem is if the price of oil does not recover next year significantly as a problem for 2016. So right now the government's not panicking, but you do, we have had print to start to muse about uh, let's you know let's dampen down our expectations. 
in the future because, yeah, we ride this roller coaster, and it's, even if our economy is doing relatively well, the government will get ahead of itself by spending too much money or making too many promises, perhaps, during by-elections cam- campaigns t- to build schools. And then they're left holding the bag. And we saw that with Redford. You made a lot of promises and then had to ratchet them back and say, we can't afford all these schools, can't build them fast enough. And that caused major problems for her. Right. I saw in your column today, you actually yeah. <laughs> linked the oil prices to a potential early election. Do you, is that, I don't could really, that really be? I, no, you know, I'm raising it now because I'm hearing it now in the legislature. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just saying right now, based on what happened last week with the by-elections, the Tories doing really well, and the fears of a downturn in the price of oil, which means that the, the province has a, a um, drop in its revenue for the province, the provincial government, it's a possibility. you got the opposition parties always talking about this. I've got conservatives saying there's absolutely no way they're not going to go early, but we never believe them until we actually see the actual writ drop. I found that a very persuasive column. I mean, Prentice has all kinds of reasons that he might want to go early. I mean, to solidify a mandate, to move before the wild rose, you know, gets its house completely back in order, um, and then the oil prices become the final, uh, you know, the final motivation. While we think about the impact oil prices might have on the provincial budget and government workers, I was beginning to worry about what impact it might have on the rest of the economy, and I was quite concerned. Gary, you somewhat calmed me down in your column today. Can you tell me a little bit about what business people are saying? They seem to not be as panicked as I was feeling. Well, I think, uh, you know, Graham touched on it a minute ago. T- uh, timelines uh, are pretty important. Um, so, you know, the contingency fund over a year could cushion the blow, but I think a, l- a lot of business people right now are living off the fat of the land, so to speak. So their order books are full, right? The PCLs of the world, the Clarks and others, they're busy. Uh, Stantec's busy. Um, so, you know, if this goes on for a quarter, two quarters, they can live with that. Uh, it's, it's a hiccup, maybe. Um, if it goes on beyond a year, then it starts to eat into your order books, and uh, then it really starts to hurt. So timelines are are key and i just wanted to jump on one other comment uh with reference to elections we could also see this impact the timing of a federal Mm -hmm. election i would think oh yeah that's right Uh, that's which we're within the window of what a year right now it's a year yeah okay you know it could could go sooner depending on how things play out so what should we be watching for from here on the oil price front and i guess when should we so when should we be revisiting it based on your timeline when do we really panic and uh so when is that on the calendar february i need i need to i think january the third at 2 (laughs) p.m you've you've heard it here folks (laughs) i'm pretty sure that's a friday no maybe not <laughs> the press releases will go out. <laughs> no, more more seriously, it is it is it, it's so tough to call, and a lot of big brains, far bigger brains than than I have, are trying to uh, figure this out, and it is it is really tough to call, largely because this is really uh, a decision in the hands of dictators who account to no one, and it's kind of an economic war between those dictators. So how do you predict how that plays out? It's really tough to say. But one thing I would say is. Even if low prices hurt us, uh, we should take some comfort, perversely maybe, in the fact that other parts of this planet are really going to feel pain too. And out of that pain, I think some rational decision-making will occur. So as we speak, countries like Venezuela, Ecuador, Nigeria, uh, Iran, Iraq, uh, many producers around this planet cannot balance budgets. They're not even close to it at $80 a barrel oil. Venezuela is in deep doo-doo as we speak. Nigeria is in big trouble. The Russians are going to be in trouble very soon. So I think those 
forces that are going to influence their decision making on where they want oil prices to be collectively. I think rational decision making will ultimately prevail and we will, we will see some uh, curtailment of production that will bring prices up. I have to say, Gary, the thought of countries like Russia, Nigeria, and Iran being in crisis and turmoil doesn't exactly cheer me up. <laughs> it's a business silver lining. Yeah. <laughs> what cheers me up is the fact that we get to move on to good stuff from the gallery. That's our weekly segment where we recommend something that we think press gallery listeners will enjoy checking out or at least find interesting. And usually, though not always, it's something that has a political connection. Paula, do you want to start us off and show us how it's done? Sure. I've been writing a lot this week about heritage preservation, which is, of course, one of my pet issues. I don't normally get to talk about it on the press gallery, so I'm going to bootleg it in here. Um, during the U.S. midterm elections in Cincinnati, they had a ballot measure. They called it Issue 8, so like a referendum. And the people of Cincinnati and the county surrounding Cincinnati voted in favor of a tax increase rare thing specifically to preserve Cincinnati's truly remarkable 1930s Art Deco train station, which I've only seen in photographs. It is an absolutely stunning, stunning building. And the people of Cincinnati actually voted by more than 60% to raise their taxes. Uh, it, it's, it's a small change in their sales tax, but it's supposed to raise about $175 million to restore the train station. Uh, we're going to post a couple of different articles, one from a heritage preservation blog and, and one from a local newspaper that look at, at some of the politics around this. But I just thought, what a remarkable thing at a time when we're always being told that people won't vote in favor of raising their taxes, that uh, heritage preservation advocates in the community did such a remarkable job of rallying people to save this landmark building that people went to the polls and voted to tax themselves to save heritage. Are we going to be seeing a Paula Simons pushed initiative here in Edmonton for well, a similar uh, well, referendum? Well, it's an interesting thing because, of course, in Alberta, cities don't have that kind of taxing power. So maybe it's something that comes into, you know, when Jim Prentice sits down with Nahid Nenshi and Don Iveson to talk about a big city charter. Uh, maybe that's part of it because, you know, uh, we have a policy now, for example, when we have public projects that 1% is dedicated to public art. We don't have any kind of uh, similar levy to preserve heritage. So I think it's time, instead of me always whining when they tear down a building I like, maybe it's time we talk about some public policy levers that would actually put money in the kitty to save the buildings that are the most precious and important to us. So darn sensible. Thank you for that good stuff <laughs> recommendation. Graham, would you like to continue for us? Yes. Um I'm sorry, in honor, I should our, make it an option. I'm sorry. Our, Graham, please continue for us. In honor, are to commemorate, um, or just to mark. There we go. To mark uh, Harper's uh, trip to China this week. Uh, he's in China. Stephen Harper's in China. Uh, I got a, this is the latest edition of the Atlantic, November edition. It's uh, China's dangerous game, um, and how it could lead to war. And this is uh, looking at uh, China, not from the point of view of an economic powerhouse, it's a military powerhouse who has um, ambitions in the South China Seas how it's bumping into its neighbors down there, um, uh, Japan and the Philippines, and how it's turning into, it's escalating uh, military um, friction among the various players in that, that region. I haven't actually finished it yet, so I don't know how it could lead to war. It's a meaty article. It's, it's a really good article. So and just, uh, you know, because we talk about China being one of our trading partners and uh, its economic clout is felt here, of course, with the oil sands. We're trying to get more pipelines to send our bitumen to China. Well, the other side of that coin is that China, of course, is flexing. It's not just economic, but it's military muscle these days, too. Okay. Thank you. I, I look forward to reading that. That sounds good. 
I'm going to recommend something that is a combination of a podcast and a book. It's also a book I haven't read, but I heard the podcast from ProPublica interviewing the author of this book, and I thought it sounded really, really good. So I'm going to, it has more to do with investigative journalism, which often involves politics, but I know a lot of our listeners are interested in journalism. So I've buried the lead here. What I'm going to recommend is ProPublica's podcast where they interview author Anya Schifrin about her new book, 100 Years of Investigative Reporting Across the Globe. And so she wanted, there have been some good books that look at investigative reporting in the United States, and there have even been a couple about what's happened in Canada, but she's gone and uh, and looked at this whole, investigative reporting across the globe for a century and to me that's a pretty good exciting book to read and I'm putting it on my Christmas list so I recommend that book and the podcast from ProPublica. Gary why don't you wrap us up? Well there's a there's a report out for uh, all the nerds out there that like to read about oil prices and uh, and follow graphs and charts and historic precedents and uh, Martin King the commodity analyst at First Energy Capital in Calgary very smart guy and he does all this for a living so we can piggyback on his uh, his smarts by taking a look at a report that he just put out this morning and uh, it, it charts the historic patterns of oil price declines and typically they play out over a period of about 100 to 110 trading days which in his view means we should be close to a bottom Perfect. Well, and when you mentioned that earlier, I thought, I want to read that report. So I'm very glad that we'll be able to give listeners the link so that they can listen too. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks to Graham, Paula, and Gary for a great session. Another shout out goes to journal videographer Ryan Jackson, who's been here in the room with us filming our every move. You'll find a video excerpt of our discussion at edmontonjournal.com. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are archived on our website at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion, or if you prefer, you can download the podcast for free from iTunes or listen via our Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Press Gallery, and uh, you can put up a question. Maybe you could suggest a topic that we'll discuss next week. We won't have Graham with us next week, so what are we going to talk about without you here? Listeners, help us out. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week in the Press Gallery. <laughs>